Psalm 145. The title I have here is uh, David's Psalm of Praise. That's the title in my Bible, David's Psalm of Praise. So Psalm 145. I will extol thee, O my God, O King. I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand and satisfieth the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto them. The Lord is nigh unto all of them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked he shall or he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever. Psalm 145 is David's psalm of praise. Tonight I'll be preaching praise the good and gracious Lord. So this is a song that people of God would sing. And one way I think to start to understand a psalm, because it's it's a it's one piece that's together, um, is to read it a few times slowly. Just read it a few times back to back. And when you do that, you may begin to see patterns emerge or themes repeating um, throughout the psalm. And so David was a a the sweet psalmist. He he wrote these poems to be sung, and so just like our songs have themes and, and where we might have rhymes in our songs, they might rhyme uh, thoughts or ideas in their songs. So whenever you, we read it, you might read it, and you read it a second time or maybe a third time, and you say, oh, well, I see something that's repeating here. I see something that, that a theme, a thread that's running out through this. So if we did this tonight, we might find a few things as we look through this. And one thing you notice is that it ends in a very similar way that it started. 
Verse 1, I will extol thee, my God, O King. I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee. I will praise thy name forever and ever. Then you look at verse 21. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? It begins with praise to God forever and ever, and it ends with praise to God forever and ever. Well, that's one thing we might notice right off the bat, so we, we set that to the side, and let's, we can go through and see if we can find some more. Well, who's being praised? Well, that would probably be very easy to find in a, a scripture. We find that it's the Lord that's being praised. And we can scan down, and we can see Lord many times uh, throughout this. Verse 3, we see it, and we see verse 8 and 9 and 14, 17, 18, 20. It's the Lord. It's Jehovah being praised here. So that's another thing, that, that God is praised, and he will be praised forever and ever. Another pattern you might notice is who's doing the praising. Sometimes it's David doing the praising. In verse um, Well, you see David praising, and then uh, it's not just David. But you see all men praising the Lord. Uh, verses 4 through 7, verse 10 through 13, it'll say either one generation, men shall speak, they shall speak, I shall speak. So you've got, you've got different people praising. David praises for a while. Verse number 1, I will extol thee, my God, I will praise thy name. One generation shall praise thy works. They shall declare, right? So you have personal pronouns, I and they. So it's not just David. It starts with David, but it spreads out to, to the people of God, even throughout all the world. David does it, but people do it now. But you also can see a future tense, forever and ever. One generation, that's past tense. So you see... People used to praise God. They praise God today, and they'll keep praising God for how long? Well, forever and ever. That's a pattern that you see. Well, another pattern we might notice is why David praises the Lord. Verse 3, 8, 9, and then verses 14 through 20, David lists the perfections of God in his works as reasons why David is lifting up his voice. So just by looking for patterns or repeated themes here, we start to see what this psalm is all about. Pieces start to fall into place. But you notice that, that all this didn't happen in a row. So it wasn't point number one is David praises God. Point number two is why David praises God. And point number three, everybody praises God. But it was staggered throughout. So you had some things here. We go to a different theme. And then they kind of repeated and so if, we, if you got you a sheet of paper and just said, okay, I'm going to group all these themes together that we found. Well, verse number one and two is David will praise God forever. Verse three is why David praises God. Verse four and seven is all men's praising God. Then right in the middle, you have the perfections of the Lord. But then it kind of goes backwards. Because we go back to all men praising God. And then to why David praises God. And then that David will praise God forever. So this is called a, a chiastic structure. So it starts off with why David praises God would be A. 
all men praise God would be B. And then here's, uh, or why David praises would be B. Then all men praise God would be C. And then you start over with C and go backwards. So all men praise God in verse 10. Why David praises God in verse 14. And then David praises the Lord forever. Back to A. So if we numbered it, it would be A, B, C, C, B, A. So that's a poetic outline that David, it's a literary device that David uses. And so whenever you find these kind of things in the scripture, the one in the middle is something that's to be stressed. So what would be in the middle? Verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and full of mercy. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all of his works. So it's like a NCAA tournament bracket if you would lay it out. And the, the thing in the middle, so A, B, C, C, B, A, and the thing in the middle is the perfections of God, his graciousness, his compassion, his mercy, his goodness, his mercy in all things. So the, that, that is just one way that this could be structured. But that's not it. That's not the only thing that you can find in this pattern. This is Hebrew poetry, so obviously David didn't write this in English, of course. Um, and it's possible we might miss something reading it in English. And in fact, we do miss something reading it in English. This psalm is an acrostic. And so in Hebrew, each verse starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if this was English, verse 1 would start with an A, and verse 2 would start with a B, and verse 3 would start with a C, and so on. That's pretty interesting that David would write a psalm and take every letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order and write the ABCs of God's praise. That's another way that, that this is laid out. And so you start at the beginning and go all the way through the end. From A to Z, God is worthy to be praised. From beginning to end, uh, God is worthy of praise for all people to praise. But you might look at verse 21 and then you say, well, there's only 21 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Well, actually, there's 22 letters. David skipped one. He skipped the letter none. Well, why did he do that? Well, um, some people suggest that it's a poetic device that you leave it unresolved. That you don't give all 22 letters. That, you, that he skipped one on purpose. As, uh, as one man said, that um, you do this, you leave out a letter on purpose because the poetic effect leaves the feeling that you can't complete it or you might not even should attempt to complete it. That, that here's all the letters and you just leave one out because you could never fill it up. That there's more in the poem than, than you could do. It's a to be continued almost. That here's my best effort, but my best can never complete what I'm trying to say. And so just in the the layout and just the thoughts that have been organized in this psalm is pretty amazing before we even get to the actual content of the text. That if we just consider the depths of the words and the form and the substance of the psalm, of the praise of God, I think that even this form and structure gives us an idea of what this is about, of how great God is and how his ways are past finding out. 
that we could dig into the depth and the riches and the glory of Christ and never come to the end. That there are treasures and gems and glories and wonders in God's word and truth about our great and mighty God that we can never get to the end of. And he is worthy to be praised. That we could begin tonight and think of ways that God has, in our own personal life, dealt with us and blessed us and guided us, that we can, we can, we can not come to the end of just praising God for how good he is to us, let alone how good he is altogether. As we start to look at some of the things that are in this text, um, we'll go through that pattern that I said, and we'll start with A, David will praise forever. So that's what we find at the beginning and at the end, that David will praise forever. Verses 1 and 2 are declarations that David is going to praise God. He's going to praise God forever. But who is David praising? Who is he extolling or exalting or lifting up in glory and honor? What's well, his God, the king? I will extol thee, my God, O king. I guess someone could say that David wrote this before he became king and he's talking about Saul, but that's that we know that can't be true. There's no way this is talking about Saul. It's obviously speaking about the Lord God Almighty. I think David, the king of Israel, is lifting up the true king of Israel. The Lord, he is the king of Israel. I believe that David understood that he was, that the Messiah would come from him in his line, and he viewed his line and his throne as, as the means by which the Messiah would rule this world. I believe he understood that. And he is praising the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, and he's blessing Jesus forever and ever. It's the king that will sit on David's throne forever. It's the son of David who will rule with righteousness and subdue the earth in glory and power. David is praising the true king who is alive, who, who is alive as he, as he speaks, but also who has not come. David is praising one who will come, one of his descendants who will come, but I will extol thee, my God, O king. Now, so he knew that his king was God, but he also knew that the king was coming. He's praising one who is, and also one looking forward to the Son of Man, and the King and the Messiah, the Christ, who would come. Did David really know all that? Well, the New Testament tells us that he did. Um, in Acts chapter number 2, Peter tells us that David knew of these theological truths. In Acts chapter 2, verse 29, listen how Peter expounds um, the Psalms. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, 
he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. Seeing this before he spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. In verse 34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but saith to himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So the New Testament tells us what David knew. He knew that God had sworn with an oath that his descendants, according to flesh, Christ would come to sit on the throne. So sometimes we don't know what the Old Testament saints do, but in this case we do know what they knew. We know what David knew because Peter, as carried along of the Holy Spirit in this sermon, and as Luke penned it, moved by the Holy Spirit, the inspired word of God tells us what David knew in the Old Testament, and he knew that the Christ, the king, would come from his descendants and sit upon the throne. David was praising Christ. David blessed or glorified and praised the name of Jesus now and forever. Every day, from now on through all eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ will be praised. Every day he's being praised and honored and glorified. He is worthy of that. He is deserving of that praise. Jesus is that glorious that he is worthy to be praised now, today, tomorrow, the next day, forever and ever, world without end. Now, is that an overstatement? So this is poetry. Maybe it's an overstatement. Uh, that he's not really worthy of that much praise. Is the Lord, King of glory, worthy of such praise? Well, David tells us why he prays in verse 3. So now he's going to tell us there is a reason, and he is worthy of that. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Now, David, is he really worthy of all that praise? He is worthy because he is great. And because he is great, he's to be greatly praised. He is worthy because he is Jehovah, because he is I am, because he is un, his greatness is unsearchable. That doesn't mean you can't try. It's not unsearchable, meaning that um, you can't even begin to search. But it means that once you start searching, you'll never find the end of his greatness. God is boundless. He's infinity in all of his greatness. There are no bounds with God. There are no borders with God. And to begin to search and meditate and look and dig into the, the truth and the glory of the Almighty God, who has no bounds, meaning that he's not contained in this church building. He's not contained within the United States. He's not contained within uh, the atmosphere of this earth. He's not contained within the bounds of the solar system. He's not contained within the bounds of the vastness of all space. He is boundless. He is without end. And his greatness is boundless and without end. See, God's perfections or his attributes are not things that are added to his greatness. They're not things that that we can say, well, this makes God great, and we can add this to the mix and add this to the mix. God is boundless. He's infinite. 
See, we can we can add to ourselves, or we can take away from ourselves to make our, and we can be better people or worse people. People can become a better person. People can become a worse person. We was talking before church about a guy I knew that he was really mean and hateful until the Lord saved him, and then he, he just became the Lord softened his heart, and he's one of the nicest, sweetest, kindest men I knew. He went from being unholy to holy. He went from being hateful to hateful. He went from being unloving to loving. Men, God can change. A person could be full of hate now, but be full of love later. But God's perfections are not things that are added to himself. But they are his perfections. So God does holy things. Because God is holy. God does loving things because he is loving. Or because he is love itself. That's his essence. They can't be separated from God. They can't be divided from his essence. God cannot become more holy. He cannot become less holy because he is holiness in itself. God cannot love more or God cannot love less because love is his essence. He doesn't grow to get more loving or he doesn't detract to become less loving. He is love. They can't be subtracted or divided from who he is. So when we think about God's perfections, what we're really thinking about is different ways that God works in the world. We can think about his love, but that doesn't mean his love and his mercy and his righteousness and his holiness are all different parts of himself that we have to balance out and they temper one or balance out the other as if they were different things in God. That his holiness is over here and then his love is over here and it evens the scales. No, God is holy. And God is love. These are, these are part, or not parts, this is uh, uh, aspects by which we can um, glorify his simple essence. And we see these played out in different aspects in the economy of redemption and creation. And so when we think about God saving us, we can think about his love, particularly towards us, and his mercy. But that's all part of the unboundless um, uh, greatness of his eternal, infinite spirit. That, that God in his pure, as the uh, theologians say, his pure act. There's no potential with God. Think about that. There's no potential with God. There's potential with, with, um, with my sons here. There's potential. They're, they're young and, and they have their life ahead of them and we, they can think about the opportunities that they might have and things they want to do. And so there's potential there. Well, there's no potential with God because um, he is perfect. It's not as if God could get better or get worse, he is. And he is in his perfection. It is the immensity of God. And this, this boundlessness runs through all of his perfections. George Swinnick said his understanding is infinite along with his justice, his mercy, his power, and all of his other attributes. 
They have no limits but his pleasure. He is love. He is not only wise but wisdom. He is not only holy but, holy but holiness. And because these attributes are his being and are his essence, and because he is infinite, these perfections are boundless. There is no border to the love of God. There is no border to the holiness of God. There is no limit to his wisdom and his knowledge and his mercy and his compassion. It's an infinite ocean by which we cannot begin to find, find the depth because it's boundless. There is, there, there's no bottom. And if God is boundless and infinite, how can we possibly search him out? How can we possibly find out all there is to know about the Almighty God? Well, the answer is we can't. We can never begin to find all the ways that he is worthy to be praised. So yes, God is worthy of everlasting praise and eternal worship. And then starting in verse number 4, through seven, all men praise God. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. <clears throat> Think about uh, our church service this morning. Several generations. All in the house of God. One generation tells the next generation about the love of Jesus. And the next generation tells the one after that. Um, Amy and I was talking about that uh, Wednesday. And, and she was uh, praising God for the mercy um, in her family and, and generation after generations that God has, and the grace of God has shown. He is worthy of that. Not well, the, today's a new day. Today's a new, uh, a new era. We can't go back to the ways of the Bible days. Well, we're not talking about copying customs from ancient times long ago. We're talking about eternal truths that span beyond generation and culture and go beyond um, what one generation likes and, and versus what another generation dislikes. We're talking about eternal truths. Glorifying the eternal God. Christianity is, is timeless in that regard. It's not something just for one generation or, or one group. Because it upholds and lifts up the eternal God. The eternal King and the Savior. Who came to save people from their sins. And that is a problem universally for all men of all times. No matter what color you are. what um, If you're a man or woman what time you live in, how rich or poor you are. None of those things have anything to do with the eternal realities of holiness and justice and love and salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. All men, therefore, have reason to praise. He is worthy to be praised. From generation down through the ages, the people will declare the mighty acts of God. And David will speak of those glorious the glorious honor and majesty of God's wondrous works. All men will talk about the awesome acts or the terrible acts of God. 
Not terrible in the bad sense, but terrible meaning awesome. God will declare God's greatness. They will remember God's great goodness in the past and sing of the righteousness today. Verse 7. They shall abundantly utter the memory of the great goodness. We can think about how God was good to us in the past. We can think how God is good to us today. We can think of God's promises for tomorrow. And all men, at all times, in all places, has reason to praise. So thus far, the focus of the praise is the the quality and the quantity of the praiseworthy acts of the wondrous God to his people. Even before we get to the specifics, speaking generally of God's wonder-working power, God is worthy to be praised. So we haven't really even got anything specific yet. But just declaring the boundless ways in which our God is worthy to be praised. So now we've got to the A, B, and the C. Now we get to that middle section, verses 8 and 9. Who is this Lord of glory? Who is it? And why is it, specifically, that we should praise him? So we know that David will praise. We know that he's given us some reasons of, of his greatness. And then everybody should praise God. But who is this Lord? Well, verse 8, the Lord is gracious. He is good. He is kind. He is favorable. He is disposed to forgive. This great and mighty, boundless, infinite God is gracious. And he is full of compassion. To think that one with such power and such might could be full of compassion to show pity for the weak is is worthy of praise. What happens to men the more powerful they become? Typically what happens? Well, they become more concerned with big things and less concerned with little little things and little thing by little things I mean little people in their eyes. You could take somebody from a small town and they could be one way amongst their small town friends and then they could get a good job and get a lot of money and then get a lot of power and maybe get into politics and, and go up and they go from being in a small town to being in the, having more people under your authority than was in the whole small town to begin with and then go to having authority over counties and states and well, then they don't care so much about the little guy anymore. They're, they're not full of compassion as much as they're full of power and pride and that kind of thing. You see that all the time. Rarely do you see people get more power and influence and become more gracious and compassionate. But God, with his boundless glory and his boundless love and, and power and holiness, is also good and kind and gracious and pitiful to the weakest of creatures. A God who who spans the universe and holds the world in the palm of his hand can look down to a weak and stumbling and rebellious sinner who 
falls on his face every day and takes, seems like, one step forward and two steps backwards. And because he is slow to anger and long-suffering and because he is a full of great mercy and abundant kindness and faithfulness, he can show pity to that weak sinner. And he can see one who is laboring and heavy laden and not crush him, not break the bruised reed or put out the smoking flax, but he can say, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Come unto me and I'll, I'll relieve you of the burden. Come unto me and I will give you rest for your soul. Come unto me because I am compassionate and I am meek. I will save you. I will give you grace. I will forgive you. I will be abundantly good and kind and faithful. That's who this Lord is. To us. Oh, he is good. And he is good to all, the text says. The Lord is good to all. He's good to you this evening. He is good to our neighbors up and down this road. He is good to everybody down in Clay. He's good to people in Charleston. He's good to everybody. He's good to the sinner. He's good to his enemies. So how is he good? How is he good to everybody? Well, on the way over here this morning, I drove past a house, and the house was full of cars. The driveway, the yard, full of cars. You know why it's full of cars? Because the family had got together over this weekend. I don't know what they were doing. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they were doing last night or any such thing. But I will say that the fact that all this family could get together and spend time with one another and enjoy one another's company and probably eat hamburgers and hot dogs and, and, and all sorts of things like that is the goodness of God. That is a common grace and a common mercy that God has bestowed upon wicked people. How did Jesus say that the people know what they were? And Jesus said it'd be like this in the last days. They were, they were all just getting married. They weren't paying attention to the coming judgment. Marriage is a, a gift from God. A, a, a social good, a common good for, 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 this, uh, for humanity. God's institutions are good. The laws are good for for common grace. Not saving grace, but common grace. Grace by which God is good to all people. Especially to his people, but he is good. It rains on your garden just as well as it rains on pagans' gardens. People who blaspheme the name of the Lord get rain on their garden just like people who love the Lord do. That is a common grace. And we can look at that and say, well, how could the Lord do that? Because he's long-suffering and he is good. His tender mercy are over all of his works. The rainbow is an example of God's tender mercy over all of his works. 
It's also an example of his great long suffering. Can you imagine this bow that has been laid down? God said, I'm not going to flood the earth again. And this bow being turned into a symbol of wickedness. And that not only is this bow turned into a symbol of wickedness, but it has become a, a, a symbol of nations and policies. And the Lord not just destroy the earth yet again. He is slow to anger. But that symbol, no matter how they try to pervert that symbol, is a symbol of God's mercy. And that withholding the great wrath that is due to this earth, withholding it, that doesn't mean it goes by, that doesn't mean sin does not get punished, but he withholds it. And Perhaps some will hear the gospel and some will turn from their sinfulness. It's God's mercy that nations, people, languages have Bibles and Christians and churches to preach the gospel. His mercy towards his creatures is common grace in this regard. So that's who the who it is that we're praising. This gracious, compassionate, pitiful, long-suffering, merciful, good. Almighty. And so now we start working way back our the structure. We've got A, B, and C. Now we got C again. All men praise the Lord in verses 10 through 13. And so if you look at that, um, God's works are praised. God's saints praise his name. And they speak of his glory of his kingdom. They speak of the power of they speak of his mighty acts. They speak of his glorious majesty in his kingdom. They speak of his everlasting kingdom. They shall. Right? So the saints, they, the saints shall. That's future tense, David says. These people in the future shall do these things. The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So they shall in the future, David says. That's trusting in the promises of God. Thinking about, yes, in the future, people shall praise the name of God. They shall praise him. And they shall praise him in his kingdom. We talked a little bit about that this morning. David had a view of the kingdom that it was not going to end. That this king would rule. In verse 14, we get back to David praising so this would be B in that structure. God is merciful to the weak and needy in verse 14. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up the, those that be bowed down. He doesn't crush them. He doesn't put out the smoking flax or break the, the bruised reed. But he is merciful and he lifts up those that fall. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't stomp down on those who fall? Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't say, leave them behind, they're slowing us down. Onward and onward, we got to go, we got to go. If you can't keep up your pace, then we're going to leave you behind. That's not how the Lord operates. The Lord upholdeth all that fall. The Lord is the kind of shepherd that will leave the 99 and go look for the lost sheep. Not say, well, I got 99 and that lost sheep gets in so much trouble, we'll leave him behind. No, the Lord upholdeth all that fall, and he raiseth up those that be bowed down. I thank God that 
He is such a, a tender shepherd. Verse 15 and 16, the, the Lord provides for our necessities. He provides our daily bread. All eyes wait upon thee, and thou givest them the meat of their due season. Sundays we eat, um, we eat a little bit late. We eat when we get home, and I've got something to eat when I get home. Why? Because the Lord provides for us. The Lord takes care of us. He gives us our need. He gives us the animals our need. It stopped raining. We were sitting there looking, and there's birds everywhere. They're down eating bugs coming up off the ground, and, and then the Lord uses me to go buy bird feed and put them in the cages. So, <laughs> Lord, I'm a tool for the Lord to feed those birds around my house, I guess. But the Lord's providing for them, isn't he? And I looked up on the hill and saw a turkey walking across the, the, the field. And he's out looking for uh, afternoon snack. And I said, well, the Lord's providing for him. How good it is that, that the Lord takes care of his creatures. Verse 17, everything the Lord does is right. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways. To... When things fall apart, when the world is upside down, when we feel like we're drowning, when nothing's going right, when we feel alone, we feel forsaken, the Lord is righteous in all his weight and holy in all of his works. Everything the Lord does is right. And you can say that. And you can pray that. Everything the Lord does is right. He doesn't make any mistakes. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, and to all that call upon him in truth. The Lord is close. We can call upon him. He will hear us. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. He won't let us stumble. He won't let us fall. He will fulfill the desires of our heart. About half the church here tonight anyway knows what it was like before cell phones and, and that kind of thing where you could be off by yourself somewhere and uh, I've many times well, I'd be driving around and my car break down, have a flat tire and be out and be dark and there wasn't reaching in your pocket and calling for help. You know, sometimes I've been miles and miles and miles and miles away from anybody and just, well, I should have I should have been more prepared, I guess, and just take off walking, hoping somebody would come and pick me up. You know, that's kind of a, a rough feeling to think, well, I'm out here all alone. There's nobody I can call to. There's nobody close by. There's nobody I can, can come to, to help me out. Well, the Lord is nigh unto them that call upon him. We can always call upon him. Night or day. Good times or bad times, he is there with us. We can call upon him. We're never alone. We're never forsaken. We're never out without help. We're never without one who loves us and that, that will fulfill the desire of them that fear him and will hear the cry and save them. That's why David praises the Lord. He is close. He will hear us. He will save us. Verse 20, the Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. Christian, you are safe in Christ. 
You need not fear God's judgment because there is no condemnation in Christ. You need not fear God's wrath for Christ suffered for your sake. You need not fear being forsaken or lost because he is the good shepherd that dies for his sheep, that keeps his sheep and holds them in his hand. The Lord preserveth all them that love him. The wicked, he'll be faithful to judge them, but he keeps his own. Christian, you are safe in Christ. And that takes us back to A. David praises forever. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Isn't God worthy of praise? Is he worthy of eternal praise? Eternal thanksgiving? We just skimmed these verses, really, and just thought about the structure, how it was laid out. But as I was reading that this, this afternoon and, and thinking through some of these things, I thought, well, I could, you could probably preach messages. Just, you could probably preach 21 messages very easily all the way through this. There, there's just so, so much depth here. But in, but in reality, apart from a few of those verses, it's very general things of, of the vastness of God's greatness. Yes, we can praise him forever and ever. He is worthy of our praise.